Good morning, everybody. For those of you that might not know me, uh, my name is Tom Watson. I am the assistant pastor over youth ministries at Metro North Church in Goose Creek. Uh, so it's wonderful to be back and to worship with you this morning. Uh, this morning, uh, if you have your Bible with you, we'll, I'll be reading out of James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So I'll give you a moment to, to turn there. Uh, but if you're not familiar with the book of James, it's a very practical book. Uh, but I have a little bit of a, a kind of like a, a love-hate tension with it because it's also a very challenging book. The book of James does not just let you sit back and, and rejoice in, in the, the, the joys of what the Lord has done, although there is an element of that. But it calls the believer to action because the theme of the book repeated time and time again is that it is not enough to say that you have faith, but that you must show your faith by the actions you do. Your actions do not give you faith. Your actions do not save you. But it is not enough for a believer to just claim faith, but they must have such faith that it is evidenced by the way that they live their very lives. And that challenge is uh, part of what we're going to be reading this morning. Let me begin in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, or for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him... It is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you communicate and speak to us by the power of your word, that this is the, the very word of God that you have breathed out, that you are living and active, that you impact our hearts and our minds today, that you are not a moral philosophy you're not a form of behavior modification, but God, you are the living and active God, the creator of all and the redeemer of your people. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that you would speak through a broken vessel like myself to communicate not my agenda, but your truth. 
let me proclaim the kingdom of Christ. And it's in his holy name we pray, amen. Now for a brief moment, this is the interactive part of the sermon because I'd like to see out of the people that are here this morning, who has lived in, this, in the general area for 10 years or more, okay? All right, who has lived here for 20 years or more? All right, excellent. 30 years or more? All right, still a good number of hands. 40 years or more? All right. So there is a good portion of you that are here this morning that will remember specifically September 22nd in 1989. Uh, uh, Yeah, there's a little bit of a nervous laughter there as memories start coming back. Approximately midnight of that night, a category four hurricane named Hurricane Hugo touched down and made landfall just north of the Charleston area. I remember my mom and I stayed with my aunt and my uncle out in the College Park area, out in Ladson. And one of the things that I remember the most was how peacefully I slept that night. I went to bed, slept through the first half. My mom woke me up and we went outside during the eye because that's what you do living in the South. You go outside during the eye of a hurricane. And then we saw the damage that the first half had done. Then I went in went back to bed and slept so peacefully through the rest of the night. Now, at the time, I was eight years old. And in my eight-year-old mind, the reason that I could sleep so peacefully was because I had such trust in the, the adults that were there to take care of me and watching over me. I had such trust in their love for me and their authority. My Uncle Roy, he was one of those kinds of uh, hands-on, like wood craftsman kind of guy that if anything was broken, I knew he can fix it. I'd seen the love and affection that my, my Aunt Linda had had for myself and my cousin Jeff. I knew the way that my mom loved me and cared for me and protected me. And I know that realistically, there was nothing that they could do if the hurricane wanted to destroy our home, but... In my eight-year-old understanding, I had such trust and peace in their authority that that was one of the most peaceful nights of sleep that I've ever had. And in a way, this is what we're seeing in this passage in James. Parts of it even read like a prophetic warning out of the Old Testament. But at its core, there's comfort for the believer. Because the believer knows and trusts that the Lord is in control. James is reminding the church that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, watches over his people. He protects his people. And that same message is true for you and I today. And so for you today, James is reminding you that every Christian can find peace under God's authority. It's almost like that feeling of security when there's a fenced-in area around a playground. The children have the freedom to run and play up to the boundary and they can know that they are safe within the authority of that fence. And it's designed to keep dangers outside of the fence. 
There's a comfort in knowing that God watches over us because he hears the cries of his people and he delivers justice in times of oppression and he establishes order out of the chaos. And we see this in three ways in this passage. First, that the Lord detests arrogance. Secondly, we see the Lord detests hoarding. And lastly, we see that the Lord controls everything. The first thing that James warns the church is that the Lord detests arrogance. He begins with this phrase, come now. And in the original Greek, uh, the, the, the verb that's used there is almost like a, a call to pay attention. It's like, hey, listen up, pay attention. I have, I have four children at home, uh, aged 11 and under. And so with my younger children, it kind of reminds me of, of, of their school teachers, you know, the whole hey, count of three eyes on me. That's what James is doing here. He's like, all right, church, count of three eyes on me, pay attention. And then he goes on to say, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's talking about the people that are making plans, but not just an everyday sense of making plans, but uh, the plans of self-certainty. It's, it's an arrogant plan making, that they are so sure of their ability and their talents that they're not even considering God in the equation. Now, I myself, I have plans for today that when I leave here, I know I'm going to stop off in North Charleston. I need to visit my aunt and help with a few things around the house. And then I'm gonna go home, Lord willing, have a wonderful half hour nap if the children let me. And then we have, uh, my wife and I help with the college group at our church and our kids have kids clubs. So we have our plans for the day. Some of you have plans for today. Might be to go out to lunch with a friend or to catch up on, on something that you might have missed over the weekend. Maybe you spend your, your Sabbath day, uh, just the, you spend the evening reflecting in the word. I don't know your plans for the day, but what I do know is that's not what James is talking about here. What James is talking about is the smug attitude towards future plans. The people that he's talking about here are the kind of people that are making their plans to amass wealth, that they're building up their own name, establishing their own brand, their own kingdom, that they are so convinced of their own ability that they never even think about God in their plan-making process. Pastor and author David Platt puts it this way, James is warning us that we can become so consumed with the material realm, thinking about our plans and plots and strategies to work and make money, that we become blind to spiritual realities. That our hearts and our, our, our interests on ourselves and our abilities, we can be so consumed with our plans and our desires to build up our own name that we begin to ignore and neglect the spiritual realities that are around us. And this isn't even a Christian problem. Even non-believers uh, can look at the world around them and see that there are forces outside of our control. It could be the weather that delays your plans. It could be the traffic 
that you think, oh, I'm going to show up right on time, and then there's an accident that derails your plans for the next couple of hours. It could be economic factors. It could be a global pandemic that so affects the entire world that it completely disrupts the chain of supply and demand. There are factors outside of our control. And so even the non-believer can see that such plans are a form of arrogance. But look at what James says next in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes where the author is talking about the toil of building up and collecting and amassing his own kingdom. And he equates it to chasing after the wind. Vanity of vanities. All this striving and toil is chasing after the wind. You can run after it all you want, but you're never going to get a handful of wind. Isaiah Chapter 40, verse 8 says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Brothers and sisters, you and I are just like that grass. You and I are that flower. We are here for a little while and we can grow and we can prosper. And sometimes we are so beautiful and lovely to look at. But just like the grass and the flower, Our time will come and we will fade. But we know that the word of God lasts forever. I want to ask you real quick, without using any assistance from Google or anything like that, but who was the Pharaoh in the fourth century dynasty in Egypt? I don't know. Who was the wealthiest merchant at the height of the Roman Empire? I don't know that either. But for all the power that they had amassed in their time, like the flower and the grass, they faded and they departed from this world. And in light of eternity, you and I, our time here is a vapor. It's a mist. We're here for a while and then we go. And so James says in verse 15, instead you want to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's saying, when the plans that that you are making, what you should be saying is Lord willing. I remember growing up, my grandmother always said, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Heard that every weekend. But what she was saying was that she was trusting that whatever the Lord willed was going to happen. And that's the way that you and I should go about our plans, our agendas, not with a smug arrogance that, well, whatever I want to do, that's what's going to happen. But a dependence and trust that whatever the Lord wills, I can make my plans, but whatever he wants to happen, that is what will happen. It's all his. Everything you and I have is already what the Lord has given to us the money that you have, the the family that you have, your home, your job, everything that you have been given is a gift from God. And so James says, you should say, if the Lord wills, because it's all already his. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Again, not the planning. Planning itself is not evil. It's good to make plans. And this is something that I've had to learn more and more as I have grown up. Growing up most of my life, I was very much like, like Peter, you know, where I'm going to jump into action first and think about the consequences later. I believe that the phrase is something like a fire ready aim. That's the way I lived most of my life when I was younger. But as I've grown older, I've seen the value and the importance of making plans. But making plans themselves aren't evil. It's the boasting in your plans, the smugness, the arrogance that says, no matter what happens, this is what I am going to do. And I am the king of my own life. And scripture says, that that kind of planning, that kind of boasting and arrogance is evil. We're not called evil that often. And we tend to not think of being arrogant as so bad as evil. Yeah, it's rude or uh, you, you don't want to spend time with arrogant people, but to be told that boasting in your plans is evil kind of sets you back for a moment and makes you wonder, Who are you really trusting in? Are you trusting in the one who has given you the very breath that you breathe? Are you trusting in your own talents and abilities and your own plans? And then we see in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now here we have, we have some fancy church words to describe sin. There's two types of sins. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are the sins that you commit when you do wrong things. But the sins of omission are the sins of things that you omit. That when you, you know the right thing to do and you do not do it. When you know, when you see someone struggling and you know that you are able to help and you do nothing to help, James says that is sin. And it's not just a a financial help. If you see someone being harassed and you don't stand up for them. Students, if you see someone being bullied or mocked or ridiculed and you do nothing to stand up for them, James says, if you'd see and know the right thing to do, and do not do it, that is sin. That's heavy. Because it's, it's more comforting to think, well, I don't do the bad things. I don't, I don't do all the things that get other people in trouble. But it's so easy to gloss over, but I didn't do the right thing here. I didn't love that person the way that Jesus loved me. I don't love that person the way that Jesus loves them. And when we fail to do the right thing, James says that it is sin. And that thought serves serves as a transition into James's next thought, as he gives his next warning that the Lord detests hoarding. He uses this come now phrase again. And at this point, it's almost like, hey, I'm still talking. All right, come on. I'm still talking, keep your eyes up here. So he's getting their attention again. He's, hey, keep up with me. 
And all of a sudden he transitions into this voice. It's almost like an Old Testament prophet speaking uh, woe against the nation of Israel. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl. Those aren't words we use very often in the church to describe uh, the, the future that, that is coming. But, but it feels like the, the, the way that he's talking to the church at this point, it's almost like when, when your mom would middle name you and you know that you're in trouble. Like when my mom would, would if my mom just said, oh, well, my, she always called me Christopher by my middle name. Christopher, you know, I, I, I knew she wanted my attention. But when I got, when I got the Thomas Christopher Watson, I was, uh, I'm, I need to listen. I need to stop what I'm doing and pay attention. But if she said this, Thomas Christopher Watson, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I'd bust into tears. Like that is heavy. But James is saying this to the church because what the church has done, what people are doing is a serious, grievous sin. Now, I want you to realize James is not condemning wealth in general at this point. James is not saying, if you have money, you are evil. Because if you go back throughout the book of James, uh, in chapter 1, uh, James is comparing the, the rich brother and the, the brother who, who is not rich, the poor brother and the rich brother. And he says that the rich brother will be humbled. He doesn't say the rich brother will be kicked out. He doesn't say, oh, well, the rich cannot be a brother, but he says that the rich brother will be humbled. In in chapter two, James is saying, don't show favoritism to the wealthy. Treat them equal like you treat everybody else. He's not saying, don't let them in. Don't share the gospel with them. But he's saying, treat everybody equal under the banner of Christ. Jesus himself says how difficult it will be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say the wealthy can never enter, but he says it's going to be difficult because when you have amassed wealth and and property and just stuff, it's so easy to be tempted to rely on on your own abilities, to, to rely on your own things instead of trusting in what the Lord has given you or will give you. So the temptation is to rely on yourself. But look at, again at, at chapter five, verses one through three. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. In our culture this, these days, we look at, at super wealthy and, and they keep making their way into the news. You know, it was a, a week and a half, two weeks ago that Elon Musk bought Twitter you know, for the, the fair price of $44 billion. Bought a website where people share their thoughts in 150 characters or less for $44 billion. 
Jeff Bezos, the creator of Amazon. I saw on, on uh, YouTube the other day that he has this super yacht, that this yacht is so massive that it actually contains a smaller yacht inside of it so he can actually get around from place to place. He has to leave the super yacht in a smaller yacht to get around to places. These men have more wealth than they could realistically spend in their lifetime. And yet, one day, generations to come, there will be children in a classroom saying, why do we have to know the names of these guys that died so long ago? Because that doesn't matter to me now. For everything that they have amassed and collected for the kingdom that they have built around themselves It's here today, and one day it will be gone as well. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told the following parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The treasures that you and I collect and store up here on earth will one day fade away. You and I will be gone and we can pass things on. There are always family heirlooms and things like that. But the kingdoms that we build here on earth will fall and fade. And James says, the wealth that you have amassed can, be, can be serve as evidence against you. Because the problem isn't necessarily the wealth, but it's how the wealth was gained. In verse four, he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. These wealthy landowners had built up their own kingdoms through dishonest means. And he's saying, your dishonesty, the cries of those that you have, have robbed, their cries have reached the ears of the Lord. These people have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. They're described as having fattened hearts. And James says, you have condemned and murdered Now remember, as I said earlier, the book of James is about how faith works. It's not just enough to say that you have faith, but James is challenging the believer, does your action back up the faith that you claim to have? And he's looking at these greedy landowners, and you remember where back in verse 17 he says, if you see the right thing and you know and you don't do it, that it is sin, He's looking at these landowners and saying, the stealing that you've done when you know that the right thing to do 
is to pay fairly, you're, you're sinning. When you don't give your, your workers an honest wage, you are sinning. When you are paying your workers in such a way that they cannot even live, James says, you have condemned and murdered. And he says, your wealth will rot and you will stand condemned as a murderer. Now there's an intensification that has taken place throughout this passage. James says first, you know, if you want to make your arrogant plans without considering God, you're evil. And now he's saying, you want to hoard your wealth? You want to be dishonest with your money and avoid honest pay? You are a murderer and the Lord will deal with you accordingly. And this, this is where we find the comfort for believers who are suffering because the Lord controls everything. I remember back, I believe it was around the year 2000, uh, the movie came out in 99. It was the movie The Sixth Sense. I don't know if you've seen it or if you remember it, but I remember the movie came out. I never got to see it in theaters, but my, my friend had rented it back when Blockbuster was still a thing that existed. But he had rented it, and I remember watching this movie for the first time, and the ending, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it, but the, the ending just blew my mind. I had no idea that that was coming at all. But because we had rented it and we had the ability to, we immediately watched it again. And all of a sudden, the second time, knowing the ending, the movie itself made so much more sense. I was like, oh, I see that there, where they planted that seed or they, they had this hint. That's why that person said that thing there. And knowing the end, the movie made so much more sense. And I could see glimpses of what was really happening. How much more should it affect your outlook of life and the world around you, knowing that the Lord is in control and will establish justice for his people? I want to give you another church word. I believe it's there in your bulletin, but it's the word sovereignty. If you look back to verse, uh, uh, or chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Going back to that concept of the, the Lord, the, everything belongs to the Lord already. Everything that you have, he has given you. This is that concept of God's sovereign control. He's not in control of a few things here or there. He's not just in control of what happens within a church building on a Sunday morning. All things are under his control. The weather outside the people that you interact with. Why do we say, if the Lord wills? Because everything is already his. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Matthew 10 says that Christ knows the very hairs on your head, and they are numbered. Some of us have less than others, but that's okay. 
because all things are under God's control. The hairs on your head, the chaos that is around the world that looks to us like we have no idea what's going on, that's still under God's authority. The very air that you breathe, the family that you have, the job that you have, your next paycheck, all of this falls under the authority of God. And so we trust in his sovereign control. Growing up, I went through some very dark times. And for people that know me, I'm, I'm very open about the struggles that the Lord has brought me through with depression and, and dark thoughts and things like that. But if it hadn't been for Christ, I can guarantee you I would not be here today. And at the time, I wondered why I would go through such struggle and heartache. But I had no way of knowing that years later, the Lord would use me, having gone through those struggles, to bring comfort to others that are in the midst of those struggles themselves. I had no way of knowing it, but my struggle with depression was under God's control so he could use me as hope for someone else. And so I ask you, what are the struggles that you are going through? And does it affect your view of those struggles knowing that God's sovereign hand is over every inch of it? The second thing that we see about God's control is his justice. Looking back to chapter 5. as he's talking to the rich about how their wealth condemns them and the misery that they will face. We see that for those that are are persecuting and oppressing others, for those who are living in such dishonest and sinful ways, the Lord will bring justice. And scripture itself is full of declarations of justice. It's all throughout the Old Testament Throughout the book of Exodus, let my people go. The Lord frees his people as they they enter into the wilderness. The book of Judges is the cyclical pattern of God's people being oppressed and they cry out to him and he gives them a judge to deliver God's people. Throughout the Psalms, we we, we see songs of, of heartache and songs of rejoice, either longing for justice or rejoicing in justice. We see, all, we see the, the, the prophets throughout the Old Testament saying, justice is coming when the Lord returns. Scripture is full of the promise that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, I am hears the cries of the afflicted and the oppressed. And the Lord promises that he will establish justice. Sometimes, sometimes we actually have the honor of seeing justice delivered here on earth. But our ultimate hope is that in eternity, the Lord will establish eternal justice. That even if we never see it this side of heaven, that one day, every person, saint and sinner alike, will stand before the judge 
And that holy judge will establish justice forever. And that's the end result of the gospel. That's part of the promise. That's not the whole gospel, but that's part of the promise of it. That's part of the reason that we confess our sin, that we acknowledge our need for Jesus Christ and that we depend on him alone. That he, the son of God, took your place, my place, as our substitute for sin. That he took the judgment that you and I deserve and paid the penalty for sin and clothed us in his righteousness to transform you and I from enemies of God into children of God all because of his death and resurrection, the chaos will be brought to order and the wrongs will be made right. So that way one day, eternal justice will be served as we see in Revelation 21, verses three through four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope. Your hope is not in your own abilities or your plans or your stuff or your wealth, but it's in the son of God who redeems his people, who sets the captives free and makes the broken things right. So I ask you, what are you trusting in today? Do you trust in your own, as scripture says, your own arrogant plans? when you're not even promised tomorrow? Are you trusting in your own wealth and stuff that you have hoarded that James says will stand to condemn you in eternity? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ who holds all things under his sovereign control and brings justice and restores his people? Who are you trusting in today? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning and we confess that far too often we rely on our own abilities and talents. We trust in our own plans and agendas. And far too often, more than we care to admit, we do not consider you in our equation. So Lord, we repent. Lord, we confess our arrogant pride and we ask that you would remind us of your sovereign control. Lord, help us to trust that you will do what is best for your kingdom and you will do what is best for us to make us new and holy. Help us to trust that when we see injustice and oppression, that we can trust that you will be the one to establish justice, that we do not have to plan our own agendas, but Lord, that we can trust that you will be our eternal hope. And so Lord, as we leave here today, let us trust that all things are under your control. Our plans, our struggles, our fears, 
All these things you take and you make broken things new. Let us trust in you. We pray in the mighty name of Christ.